Welcome to episode 101 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. Last episode, we ended with Mao's January 1929 departure from the Jigongshan base area. And during our discussion of the Bailu Conference, where Mao and other leaders decided on leaving the base area, we also discussed how the Chinese Communist Party had held its sixth Congress in Moscow during the previous summer. And we talked about a directive that arrived in the base area that Mao ended up suppressing from coming to light during this conference. All the details on that are in episode 100. But we hadn't talked about the 6th Congress before, and so I wanted to go back in time a little bit and start talking about that Congress. Ever since the August 7th, 1927 emergency conference, which we discussed in episode 56, the party center had been led by Chu Chubai, and the party policy had been to pursue every possible opportunity for launching armed uprisings. The most important examples of these uprisings were the Nanchang Mutiny, which created the Communist Red Army, the Autumn Harvest Uprisings, which led to the creation of the Jingongshan Base Area after Mao retreated there, after the Autumn Harvest Uprising in Hunan was defeated, the Guangzhou Uprising, which had led to the very short-lived Guangzhou Commune, and the South Hunan Uprising. We've discussed all those uprisings in past episodes of this podcast. But as we talked about in episode 73, these were just the most significant examples of an overall policy which saw the communists attempt to kick off armed struggle in a great many local contexts. The thinking behind this policy, which later came to be critically referred to as blind actionism, was that the country was on the verge of a major social revolution, if only the peasants and workers could be given some leadership and pushed into rising up. This thinking was based on the idea that the revolutionary enthusiasm that the masses of people had shown during the Northern Expedition had not been exhausted by the repression that the Guomindang had exercised on the mass movements during the first half of 1927. And so if only the communists could rally the peasants and workers, the Guomindang could be overthrown and the communists could take power, at least in some significant portion of the country. And what 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 this what was meant by this by some significant portion of the country uh, was not that the communists would just end up controlling a mountain redoubt like the Jingongshan, but that some major cities like Wuhan or Changsha or Guangzhou could be conquered and a Soviet regime set up there. How these policies were carried out, and how the political situation in the country had actually changed and made this policy of blind actionism untenable has been one of the major themes of this podcast for the past two years. Uh, In particular, we've followed Mao's evaluation of this problem and his ongoing conflict with higher-level party authorities on this question as he looked for ways to keep the revolution going despite the unfavorable turn in the objective conditions. So, I won't belabor the point here, uh, since we've talked about it so much from a few different angles already. At the level of both the party center and the Comintern leadership in Moscow, by spring of 1928, it had become clear to many people, but not all, that the favorable assessment of objective conditions for revolution endorsed by both the party and Comintern leadership had been wrong. So, in order to steer a new course for the revolution— the common turn and party center decided to hold a party congress, and that uh, due to the overwhelming repressive campaign being waged against the communists in China's cities, the only way that the security of the congress could be ensured would be to hold it outside of China. So it was decided to hold the congress in Moscow. 
In April, the Comintern suggested that Chu Chu Bai, Zhou Enlai, and three other leading comrades go to Moscow to begin preparations for the Congress. And as preparations for the Congress began in Moscow, the political debate within the Communist Party inside China sharpened up. In May 1928, the Jiangsu Provincial Committee passed a resolution criticizing the party center and Chu Chu Bai's leadership. The Jiangsu Provincial Committee was one of the most important bodies within the party. It served as the leadership uh, for the city of Shanghai, as well as the rest of Jiangsu province. Uh, and we discussed something about how it functioned in episodes 83 to 85. And we also talked uh, some about a peasant uprising launched by the Jiangsu Provincial Committee in episode 73. This criticism claimed that the Central Committee had failed to, quote, notice defeats and pessimistic moods among the workers, end quote and that the optimistic party policy of fomenting armed uprisings whenever and wherever possible, quote, sprang from a subjective appraisal of the position and did not correspond to the objective situation, uh, end quote, and that this had led to, quote, the divorce of our party from the masses, end quote. In other words, the criticism alleged that the desire of Chu Chu Bai and the other members of the Central Committee to carry out an armed revolution had blinded them to the fact that the conditions were, at least in most places in China, unfavorable for launching armed uprisings. The criticism alleged that the top party leadership was reading the situation just as being what they wanted to see, not what the situation actually was. That this was leading the party to become disconnected from the masses of people who would not just keep throwing their lives away in revolutionary efforts which were doomed to fail. The criticism of the Central Committee published, was published in full in Moscow in the journal of the Sun Yat-sen Communist University of the Toilers of China. Uh, this was the trainee school for Chinese communists run by the Comintern. The resolution was accompanied in the journal by an editorial note that endorsed the, quote, just criticism of the errors and shortcomings of the central leadership of the party, end quote while also noting that, quote, the policy of a rising adopted by the August Conference of the Party could not be condemned in the conditions prevailing at that time, end quote. So in other words, while it may have been initially understandable to have adopted a very aggressive attitude toward launching armed uprisings back at the time of the August 7th, 1927 emergency conference, the Comintern leadership was now pretty sure that the time had passed and that it was time for the party leadership to come to terms with the current objective situation. Aside from the issue of how it assessed the objective conditions for launching armed uprisings in China, the Central Committee also came under serious criticism on one other major issue. This concerned its response to the Jinan incident of May 3, 1928. Jinan is the capital of Shandong province, and Shandong was part of Japan's sphere of influence in China. Uh, you may recall from past episodes that China had been carved into different spheres of influence by the different imperialist powers, and this entailed stationing many foreign troops in different parts of China in order to safeguard the interests of the different foreign powers in China. So, as the Guomindang continued the northern expedition in the spring of 1928, uh, fighting northern warlords and trying to consolidate the whole country under its own rule, it eventually took over the city of Jinan in April 1928. The Japanese in Jinan had become very worried about the advance of the National Revolutionary Army, and so thousands of Japanese troops had been sent into the city. 
Things were very tense between the two armies occupying the city, and on May 3rd, fighting broke out between the two sides. After a week of fighting, the Guomidong forces had been badly beaten and driven out of Jinan, which would remain under very harsh Japanese military rule until March 1929, when an agreement was reached that allowed the Chinese to take over the administration of the city, although it remained part of the Japanese sphere of influence. Large numbers of Chinese civilians were killed during indiscriminate bombing of the city by Japanese artillery. These events in Jinan aroused strong anti-imperialist and specifically anti-Japanese sentiment in a lot of Chinese people, especially in the cities. It was the contention of the Jiangsu Provincial Committee that the communists should have tried to put themselves at the head of the anti-imperialist upsurge. However, Chu Chu Bai and the Central Committee argued that this would be a mistake, since Chu thought that it would put the communists in the position of supporting the Kuomintang, which was, after all, the main political force trying to kill the communists. As a result, the communists did not try to intervene in the mass outpouring of anti-imperialist sentiment following the events in Jinan. In this case, the executive committee of the Comintern very much thought that Chu Chu Bai was mistaken. As it turned out, uh, quite a bit later on in the revolution, Mao is going to make a major political issue out of trying to get Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang to fight the Japanese rather than the communists. This is going to come to a head in 1936 with a series of dramatic events called the Xi'an Incident, uh, where essentially part of the Kuomintang military is going to be won over to support a united front with the communists in order to fight Japan. And that part of the Kuomintang military is going to literally force Chiang Kai-shek to begin fighting Japan. And it's going to turn out to be a tricky balancing act on the part of the communists to emphasize the fight against Japan in a way that does not ultimately redound to the benefit of the Kuomintang. However, the communists will be helped immensely in this regard by Chiang Kai-shek's complete reluctance to fight the Japanese and his desire to always go after the communists, which will strike all patriotic Chinese people as completely absurd. As Chiang Kai-shek saw it in his own words, uh, the Japanese were a disease of the skin, but the communists a disease of the heart. A few Chinese people agreed, however, and this would ultimately really cost him politically. So, what with the criticisms of the Central Committee that had been made by the Jiangsu Provincial Committee and the Comintern leadership's general unity with those criticisms, the stage was being set for the upcoming party congress. Uh, invitations to the Congress went out in mid-May, and the Congress was to be held in June, which means that those invited needed to more or less drop whatever they were doing and begin traveling to Moscow. Uh, we can get a concrete idea about how travel to Moscow took place from Zhang Guodao's memoir. Uh, it took him two weeks to get from Shanghai to Moscow, taking a, a boat from Shanghai to Dalian, and then going north from Dalian to Harbin, where he was able to get on the Chinese Eastern Railway to begin the long ride to the Soviet border at Manjoli, and then across Siberia to Moscow. On arriving in Moscow, he was taken directly to an old manor house on the outskirts of Moscow, which was near a village which was off the beaten track and where the Congress could be held without attracting much notice. I uh, managed to track down an image of the old manor house that Zhang refers to here, and I've uh, used it as the episode artwork for this episode. 
Uh, I know that most podcast players don't show episode artwork, so if you can't see it on your app, uh, you can find the image on the peopleshistoryofideas.com website. Anyways, listeners with a good memory might recall from our series of episodes on life underground in Shanghai, episodes 83 to 85, that Zhang had been uh, kind of biding his time in Shanghai and not doing much of anything because he was in a kind of political disgrace after receiving some of the blame uh, for the defeat of the Southern Expedition at the November 1927 Politburo meeting in Shanghai, uh, which we discussed back in episodes 71 and 72. Zhang was uh, one of several major leaders who had been on the outs with the party center who were invited directly to the Congress by the Comintern, which uh, wanted to ensure that the major voices of disagreement in the party would be heard at the Congress. Uh, Most people who attended the Congress were issued invitations from the party center. But in these several cases, the Comintern circumvented the local party and invited these disgraced leaders directly because otherwise they probably would not have been invited. Uh, Notably, this also included Chen Dushu, the former general secretary of the party who had been deposed at the August 7th emergency conference and who had not been given any revolutionary tasks since that time. Chen decided that he wasn't going to attend the Congress. Uh, When Zhang Guodao had gone to try to convince Chen to go, uh, this is what Chen said to him, according to Zhang's memoir, quote, The harsh criticism against me contained in the resolution of the August 7th meeting has indicated the Comintern's intention to get rid of me. Because of this, my attendance will do me no good. End quote. And uh, Zhang told Chen that, quote, If you don't go, a break in the relationship between you and the Comintern or CCP central headquarters will be a matter of time. End quote. Now, one thing we see happening with leading communist figures from around the world at this time who had ended up losing out in leadership struggles or who had espoused political lines that ended up getting repudiated is that it wasn't uncommon for the Comintern to find ways to make use of these people in Moscow. It was a kind of kill two birds with one stone way of dealing with deposed leaders. On the one hand, uh, it got them out of the way on the local scene, which meant that they wouldn't be faced with a choice between either unenthusiastically implementing policies that they disagreed with or continuing to implement the old policies that they believed in, but which the party and Comintern had decided against. Additionally, it avoided having uh, former top leaders, who often had considerable egos, who had clashed with the new leaders in the recent past, having to work under the people who had replaced them in leadership. And using these old leaders in Moscow meant having relatively experienced and competent people in Moscow to carry out the many tasks that needed doing there. Uh, One of the great weaknesses of the Soviet Union was the shortage of people who were competent to do the organizational tasks uh, required to build socialism and promote revolution abroad. And so the common turn could make use of these people in Moscow. In fact, we're going to see this happen to Chu Chu Bai after the 6th Congress uh, when he gets replaced. Um, and we'll get to the details uh, there in a future episode. Um, I've been reading a, a book-length history of the communist movement in the United States, uh, which was recently published in a journal called Kites, uh, where I was reminded of this practice uh, uh pretty much about the same time as we're talking about here in China, where they discuss uh, how the Comintern tried to resolve a leadership struggle inside the Communist Party of the United States in the late 1920s between William Foster and Jay Lovestone, 
uh, by having Lovestone move to Moscow and take on work for the Comintern over there. Uh, in that particular case, the tactic uh, didn't work, and Lovestone refused to accept his loss in the leadership struggle. But there are a good number of examples of people from all over the world who did go and become useful in Moscow after their participation in the local struggles of their own countries became problematic due to new constellations of leaders and political lines that didn't leave much room for the old leaders. Uh, and just as an aside on this history of the communist movement in the United States that I've been reading, uh, it's a very interesting document, and I think that some people who listen to this podcast would enjoy reading it. It's a somewhat unique product in that it's, uh, for the most part, uh, serious and in-depth history, which uses a range of reputable sources, which has been produced by a communist organization for its own political purposes. And so it reads very differently than something written by an academic such as me, uh, who produces their work at least partially under the constraints of the various ways in which producing knowledge, uh, or perhaps more accurately, as they say these days, producing content uh, as part of a career path uh, affects the work that one produces, however progressive one might want to be. Uh, this difference has both positive and negative aspects, but is definitely engaging and has a lot of food for thought in it. In fact, one of the reasons it's taken so long for this podcast episode to come out is because I've been slowly reading and making notes on this book. Uh, it's definitely not for everybody, and I don't want you to take my recommendation as endorsement of everything in it. Um, that should go without saying, but I, I just want to be extra cautious because this is uh, an overtly political document. Um, in particular, I think it's not very generous in considering the difficulties that would-be communists in the United States have faced in the past couple of decades, and uh, sometimes veers in an overly military direction uh, in its consideration of political problems. Um, but honestly, given how long it's been since anyone on the revolutionary left pr has produced anything as serious as this history, uh, it makes for highly engaging reading, and uh, I'd begun to doubt whether there were any Maoist forces remaining in the United States who were capable of the sort of sustained and collective intellectual effort that seems to have gone into this document. Uh, and I understand that they're also going to publish something similar about the history of the communist movement in Canada as well. Um, I guess since I mentioned a couple of brief criticisms of it, um, I'll point out something positive in it. Um, uh, nowhere else will you find anything approaching a beginning evaluation of the intense efforts that Maoists made in the projects in LA and Chicago during the 1990s and early 2000s to create what they called political base areas, uh, and also the efforts that were made to draw in progressive middle strata to support those proletarians, uh, especially by working uh, with the family members of people who had been killed by the police. Um, so if that's something that interests you as much as it does me, uh, it's at least worth reading that section of the history. Uh, and hopefully they'll publish a more complete summation of that work in the future. Okay, uh, back to China. So I brought all this up as a way of saying that when Chen Shu said that, quote, the harsh criticism against me contained in the resolution of the August 7th meeting has indicated the common turn's intention to get rid of me. Because of this, my attendance will do me no good, uh, end quote, uh, that basically I think that Chen was wrong. Of course, on one level, it's like, who am I to question Chen's evaluation of his own situation back in China in 1928? 
Uh, but I do think that the record shows that the Comintern was very willing and desirous of finding ways in which deposed leaders such as himself could continue contributing to the global revolution. And I suspect that he, uh, that had he attended the upcoming party congress in Moscow, that he would have ended up staying in Moscow and working there in some capacity. Uh, but of course, Chen had been a major national figure even before he co-founded the Communist Party. And we know that, that he had a massive ego. It was very difficult for him to now be subordinate uh, organizationally to the younger men who are now in charge and who he really did not have that much respect for. Uh, they certainly lacked his learning, his experience, and his prominence. Uh, so it isn't totally surprising that he decided on a course of action that would eventually lead him to break with the common turn. Uh, this break will become much more decisive in the near future as he gets together with some people who had been students in the Soviet Union and who brought Trotskyism to China. Um, I'd like to do an episode on the emergence and significance of Trotskyism in China in the not-too-distant future, and uh, Chen will be an important figure in that story. Uh, we'll, we'll see if it happens. So the Congress took place from June 18th to July 11th, 1928. There were 84 delegates in attendance with voting rights and a further 54 people attending without voting rights. And uh, we'll talk some about what exactly happened at the Congress next episode. 